Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm Menes, and this podcast is coming up to its 10-year anniversary. Yes, in the middle of August, it'll be 10 years podcasting, and I'm thrilled in this episode to be joined by the first ever international captain and cricketer to appear on the show, former Australian captain Lisa Stalaker. Lisa, welcome. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Menes. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm actually got a bit of jet lag from the cricket. Like I haven't left the country, <laughs> but staying up all night watching the Ashes has meant, you know, I'm eating lunch at 2 p.m. and dinner at 9 p.m. and sleeping in the day. So Sounds about like, right. Yeah. I'm glad <laughs> think, for this. I think most break. Australians are like that at the moment. Absolutely. It's been such good cricket. It's been hard to go to sleep. So, yeah, I'm glad for this 10-day break to get some sleep. Um I wanted to have you on the show just to catch up because I haven't seen you for a while and haven't been on the show for a while and you've been as busy as ever. Um, tell me, this year you've done some great things. You went to the WIPL and with a mentor for the UP Warriors. Just to, What was that like? Yeah, it was, um, it was amazing to kind of get back on the other side of it. You know, I'd been sitting... <laughs> Um, comfortably in the air conditioning commentary box and and talking about the game and um, it was nice to to kind of be part of a team again and to see how things have changed. I mean, literally, there are digital people running around capturing everything, like camera in your face all the time, taking photos, taking videos, um, and then also just to see how players prepare. Um, you know it's become very professional in the sense that there's a lot of um there's a lot of ownership left onto the the senior players at least to to kind of drive team meetings drive 
um, where they want to take the team um, and then work with some of the coaches who I had seen from afar. Um, Ashley Nofke, obviously head coach of uh, the Brisbane Heat and um, the Queensland Fire Girls and, and John Lewis, who's the head coach of England um, and Andrew Jane, who I used to play against and now is, um, has been coaching um, ever since she kind of um, stepped away from the game. So it was good to kind of um, connect with them and, um, yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. They um, were very welcoming and, and it's interesting just, you know, working and listening to owners, private investors that have bought and spent a lot of money to to own this site and what their expectations and and what they want. And um, we had a we had a great owner and his daughter. His daughter actually was kind of um, the conduit and stayed with the team. And, you know, she's um uh, a, a businesswoman, young independent female. And I said, actually, you're a great role model for these young girls of what, you know, um, I guess the modern India is going to be that women can can achieve a lot. Um, so, yeah, it was great. The cricket was excellent um, and I can't wait to get back there next year. And tell me, was it, was it like the, the men's IPL is a really serious business now and there's a ton of pressure on the players. Mm. How did the women's IPL start? Yeah, so so the Women's Premier League, so they the BCCI dropped an eye. They yes, thought they'd, make, they'd change it slightly just because there's a couple of teams that aren't in the men's IPL, so uh, they'd yep. call it WPL. Um, but you know, one thing that happened which was quite unique especially for the players. Uh, we're all in South Africa. They're playing a T20 World Cup and the WPL auction is going on. And it happened to be on game day for some teams. And literally everyone was tuned in. And normally contracts are done, WBBL and the 100 contracts are kind of done secretly. No one really knows how much everyone mm. gets paid. Whereas here people are actually bidding for you. Um, and you are a commodity, you know, your value is, is there for, for everyone to see. Um, and that really affected a lot of players, um, some positively, some of them got huge money, but then within their team, there were some people that missed out. So it was trying to balance all of that in in amongst a T20 World Cup. Um, so that was the first thing that was um, unique and different. Um, and then coming into the tournament, it's, I'd say that players tend to be a little bit more sheltered from a commitment perspective, but WPL and IPL, it's literally we, we've bought this and we need to give our sponsors this much time of you and you'll do it. So um, day the days off were extremely busy. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a new experience for the players um, and one that, they're just going to have to get used to, but I think they will, given the amount of money that was being thrown around. Absolutely. And I guess it's something where the experience of the IPL and the men's players in Australia might be able to be, you know, transferred across dealing with those team situations where you've got someone like Ash Gardner going for half a million dollars and other players getting passed over. You know, that's something that's been happening in, in men's cricket for a long time. Um, and it, it did cause problems if you go back and, you know, look at what happened between Andrew Simons and Michael Clark. There's a feeling that there was some envy there when Simons got that big IPL deal. So, yeah, it's certainly a real thing. Talk about it looked fantastic, though, the atmosphere, like the crowds, the support. I mean, it, it looked like a watershed moment for women's cricket. 
Yeah, it was. And the, you know, the great thing, a little bit like what we experienced here in 2020 at the MCG in the T20 World Cup final, everyone kind of came out, everyone came there to support. You saw so many past Indian players, you know, that have been hoping and 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 praying for a time like this. And um and the fact that they were able to put it on in such a short space of time, I think literally the teams knew. They had it side, um, I think, end of January <laughs> and the auction was like in two weeks' time and then it was and we're playing in three weeks, you know, four or five weeks' time. So um, I think, you know, teams will be a lot better prepared in that sense. Um, the crowd was good. I mean, to have it just in Mumbai and two kind of venues, um, you were asking a lot of the Mumbai fans to keep coming out, but they came out for the for the big game. So obviously the more recognisable franchise of um, Delhi Capitals and Royal Challengers of Bangalore, you know, whenever they play or Mumbai Indians, there was there was a great kind of following. Um, but semi-finals and finals, it, it was packed stadiums and, and there was a, definitely a great buzz. So um, there's talk potentially that next year they kind of will do um, a couple of venues, um, maybe even home and away. I mean, we we're all still kind of waiting to hear. But I think taking the game out has been has been one of the successes of the IPL. So I can't wait for the WPL to do exactly that. Yeah, definitely. I guess for once it starts moving around the country, it'll feel like a real competition. Uh, what about um, the comparison of standard between the WPL and the WBBL? Where do you think they sort of sit? Yeah, it, like I certainly felt um, that the game went an extra level straight away. Um, players, you can't sit for five deliveries or ten deliveries and just, you know, score seven or eight off those ten deliveries. You, you have to be going straight away. Um, I almost likened it to the start of WBBL when people weren't sure about the the depth of the domestic players. Um, you had a lot of international coaches there. Um, and remember, they bought the players. And uh, I, I don't necessarily think the next best crop of Indian players were selected, to be honest. So I actually think um, you will see uh, stronger teams come come year two. Um and because and 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 what that will do is it will elevate the competition even more. Whereas some teams felt like there was, you know, if you could get through the top three or four, you kind of, you're okay. Um, and I think what it did also do, and, and the whole point of it is for Indian domestic players to kind of rub shoulders with some of the best. Um, you had Shafali Verma batting with Meg Lanning um, and she was running twos. Now, she doesn't often do that. <laughs> She's always just a boundary player. Um, but, you know, Meg Lanning would have been speaking to her about different things, no doubt, and she sees how she goes about things and goes, okay, maybe I could take a leaf out of her book. So all of those things were really um, important for the development of women's cricket in India, and we'll see that tournament um, become the best tournament in women's um uh, T20 leagues, so similar to what we're seeing with the men. Yeah, you're right. It, it was a bit like, the, it seems a bit like the WBBL where those first couple of years you saw the little things really improve in the domestic players, fielding, running between wickets, that it's just the fact that, you know, they didn't have time in the past to train and, and work on them, but now you get in a professional environment and 
all of a sudden you're given the the time to work on it and it, you get that improvement. Yeah. What, um, okay, sticking with women's cricket, let's head across to the UK because the women's ashes is going on at the moment and, you know, massive crowds watching, <clears throat> you know, Lords 20,000 people on the weekend to see England win a series against Australia. So as the series stands, when we record this, Australia is six to four points wise. They won the test in the T20 and now three ODIs to go. Australia just needs to win one and they retain the ashes. Do you think they've got this format right, Lisa, with a test that's worth four points, then the white ball cricket? Uh I think when it first started, the test match was six points. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all almost like if you won it, you've got no chance of, of fighting your way back. So um, and they've also played the test at different times within this multi-format series. Um, yeah, I'd always be interested to hear what other people think. You know, obviously uh, new viewers that kind of look and a different um, lens of, of the women's uh, ashes and, and to see if it works well. I mean, what it has shown, that that test match, and when you actually allow it to go to five days, you get some pretty good cricket. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's I've heard there's an argument now. A couple of people are saying, well, why don't you have a couple of tests now involved, especially against England and Australia? So, um, you know, I don't know if, if the calendar will allow that, um, but this multi-format series gives context all the way through the series, which is great because... You know, England now have fought back. They've got kind of got the local got the local home crowd really buzzing because of their performance. And now everyone's going. I think uh, the next game in Bristol sold out. So you know, th- there's great atmosphere that has been building over the course of the the tournament. So four points allows allows England still a chance. Remembering that Australia have already already have the urn, so they only need I think one more victory to retain it um so uh you know that means that the, all of a sudden it's do or die isn't it for england which is compelling cricket to watch absolutely yeah i just wonder if they they need if the test having more waiting you know be, takes away from the series a bit because australia get that four points and all of a sudden you know they win the first t20 and they've almost got the ashes whereas I don't know if the test was maybe two points or it, it's a tough one because whichever way they go, um, you know, test cricket will feel like it's not being given enough um, primacy. But yeah, the five days was fantastic. It was exceptional. And if you could go three tests, three T20s, three ODIs, I mean, that would be a dream ashes. And that would be a dream ashes, maybe even in men's cricket, just, you know, three formats, three series. I mean, that's probably the future. Yeah, I, I certainly feel that this multi-format series is something that could be adopted in the men's game, and I've said it for a while. I think Claire Connor has said it as well. Um, you, you look at the fact that Ireland and Afghanistan are now test-playing nations, and at some point Australia will play them, um, and you think, okay, well, you don't want two tests. What 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 does a two test series really mean, right? So why don't you go one test and three ODIs and mm. three T twenties, and it, it actually probably levels the playing field, so to speak, because each format, as you you know, what everyone believes, as as you drop down the overs, you, you've got more chance for one or two people just to have a day out. Um, whereas the longer the format, the more skillful side should win. So. Um, yeah, I think it's something if, you know, there's been all uh, lots of discussions around will test cricket survive 
um, in general. Um, I certainly think it will, given the, you know, um, the hoopla that's going on with the men's ashes mm. as well. And um, obviously series against India as well. There's some iconic series that are now taking place, but against sides that are struggling in the test arena, this might be a way forward in the men's um, men's calendar. Also, England struggle when they come to Australia in the men's ashes. Maybe we give them three tests and some white ball stuff. Men is a nasty man. All right. Uh, Just looking at the Australian women's team, just just sort of stepping back and looking at the sort of, I don't know, there's not a generational change happening, but you're certainly seeing the the young players emerge, Annabelle Sutherland, Talia McGrath, uh, move into the team, and show that skills that they've brought up in the WBBL. I mean, I think this Australian women's team looks as healthy as ever. I mean, you could, you know, Meg Lanning's not there. Um, Elisa Healy and Elise Perry have been playing for a long time now, but still this generation coming up. I mean, we saw a fantastic century by Annabelle Sutherland in the test match. It, it, you know, the, the future for this team is very bright. Yeah, uh... The Australian women's side has been very blessed for a long period of time and I think they've always got the balance of experience and youth right within the playing squad and then the playing 11 so that when senior players are injured or depart or move on, the next player is ready to kind of step up. Um, And that's a byproduct of the WBBL uh, and WNCL, which have been hard competitions where players are tested week in, week out, um, and then they they want to be part of this Australian side. They have to fight extremely hard to get their their foot in the door and then to actually get into the playing 11. So um, a, we've been blessed that players, when they've been given an opportunity, they take it with both hands. Um, there, there hasn't been a, well, let's get her in and we'll batter down the order. We'll give her a couple of overs here or there just to ease her way through. It's like, no, we need a number three. We need someone to open the bowling. Darcy Brown, where you go. Um, and they've all done a, an excellent job. So you're right. Um, you know, people, you talk, like I'm about to go to ICC um, meetings and there's a, with part of the women's committee meeting, they're like, how do we make sure that Australia don't just dominate? And I said, I, I actually think there's there's a once-in-a-lifetime group of players that have grown up and they're just unbeatable. When they all depart, then let's see how good the Australian side is. But then every series, someone <laughs> steps up and you're like, Ugh, okay, maybe they will keep dominating. Um, so uh, it, it's a good test. I mean, Credit to England, we're talking about the women's ashes, credit to England to to knock Australia off in the T20 series, given the fact they're Commonwealth Games gold medalists and T20 World Cup champions um, and 50 50 over World Mm. Cup champions. So to do that, you know, they've had to play extremely well. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually went to a game last summer and they had all the trophies that Australia have won on display at North Sydney Oval. You might have been there and it was really impressive. It took up the whole stand, all their trophies. Um, But I think it a bit as, like, say, the early 90s in men's cricket where Australia got the jump on professionalism and they had Mm -hmm. academies and they were really honing their skills and other teams were sort of falling behind. And I think Australian women's cricket did the same. They got the jump and that's why we're seeing this wonderful group of players that have been so well supported by cricket australia that the only the other countries are now catching up they are um, yeah and they're catching up quick we you know you know india 
when they put their attention to something, things happen really fast, um, as you said before. Um, just before we move on, just I know another one of your great passions is the New South Wales women's cricket team. Mm. Um, they now, there's an interesting one. They are in a, a, a situation where, you know, they did lose a lot of players and some have left state, some retired, some aren't playing very much anymore. And there's a big gap in the performances from before and now. So you know, why do you think that is? I don't know. It hurts my heart. Um, you know, it, it really does hurt when I look at the WNCL and I see where the breakers are given the the long history and proud history that we we've had. Um I agree with you. There was there was probably a period where uh things weren't necessarily right. Um and a lot of our players that we thought would stay on and become senior players moved to different states for for better opportunities for different chances um and because of that we've had to go really young um and you know like I said one of the benefit of an Australian side has always been that mix between experience and youth and then you take away you take out the Aussie players as well um because they're not really playing WNCL and there goes our experienced players so to speak so you know when Rachel Haynes was playing Elisa Healy Ash Gardner um, you take them out, you know, your younger players don't get to learn as much from them. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm, pl- I'm pleased to see that Sarah Coit has come back. I sent her a message and saying, welcome, welcome back home. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, those type of players coming back and playing for New South Wales and almost ending their career with us um, when, when we were the ones that, you know, first gave them the opportunity. I think there's a nice, there's a nice end to that. So hopefully she can inspire the the younger girls. I, I certainly think there's talent there, but, um, there just needs to be stronger leaders, I would say within that setup. Um, and then hopefully we'll see a change in performances. Yeah. Hopefully the new cricket central out at Silverwater will induce a few players. You must, as a former player, be like, oh, where was this when I was playing? I mean. Men, as I literally, Leah Poulton showed me around and I said, right, there's, because there's the hot bath, the hot bars and the cold bars, right? Ice (laughs) bath. I said, I'm just going to get a bottle of bubbly in my swimmers and just sit there as the players all come through. Uh, All past (laughs) players should be allowed to do that, I reckon. (laughs) I like it. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about Bazball. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're 
You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menas, and I'm joined by former Australian captain Lisa Stalaker. Now, let's talk about baseball. It's been under the microscope, and I'm keen to get your professional mm. lens on this. It's been a bit of a cultural debate within this podcast for the last few weeks. What do you think of you know England's so-called revolutionary approach to cricket, mm. Test cricket? Okay, so there's different opinions, right? One opinion is it's a it's a bit of a smokescreen for taking responsibility out of what you do and just playing with absolute freedom and who cares. Um, but, boy, we're going to make it entertaining and, you know, we're going to enjoy ourselves along the way. Um, the second thing is that it, it, it challenges the norms of what Test Cricket has been all about. Um, it... It, uh, I've never seen, I've never seen fields set the way that they have. The Australians have set because of the way that the English are playing. Um, questions will be, you know, at, and I guess we'll have to wait till the end of this series to say, did it work or did it not? I think it has worked um, in popularizing the game. Um, I think everyone's tuning in. Uh, so sometimes I think. <laughs> a bit of media, a bit of hype, a bit of whatever you want to call it is enough to get people interested. Um, you look at you you look at the players that are leading this, you know, Ben Stokes and um, Brendan McCullum, you know, when you look at him playing test cricket, it, it, it's the same thing. Mm. Now, I, I think there is there is some kind of rhyme or reason to, to what they're doing. Um, things have worked in the past. It's just... When you're playing against a quality side like the Australian team, they just keep coming back. They keep fighting back. So, yes, England may get the upper hand or, yes, that plan may work to get a certain batter, but you've got to get another 10 more out as well. So um, I think that's that's the issue um, with the Baz ball. But I've enjoyed it because a lot of people that aren't interested in test cricket are watching it. So it works for me. <laughs> It's interesting you say about it being like a, it's almost a, a mental state of mind, basketball, mm -hmm. a sort of release from pressure and a release yeah. from responsibility and a sort of embracing freedom and they've taken it to the extreme. And I, I think it's, I think we're seeing though that it, when are the pressures really on, it's very hard to, to keep that up. And Along with that, though, has also come some arrogance and some sloppiness. And do you need both? Because I don't think you do. I think you can be aggressive and positive and still do the little one percenters. Like if I was an English fan, I would be thinking, why are you dropping catches? Why are you picking right. out second best wicketkeeper? Why yeah. are you declaring on the first day of a test match when Joe Root's smashing them? It seems yeah. like they've gone a bit crazy. Yeah, th there are a couple of things that, you know, I, I agree with you. It doesn't matter what type of cricket you're playing. The basics are still important. Yes. <laughs> um, so the understanding of where your off stump is. <laughs> yep. If you want to move around all over the place, you want to switch hit, you want to ramp, go for it. But at least know where your off stump is um, and you have to take simple catches. And I agree the issue has been, uh, uh, from a Bearstow point of view and a wicket-keeping perspective, it's like they've gone the T20 perspective. We just need a and I'm not going to call him, it's, he's not a backstop. He's better than a backstop, but it's like the ball hardly goes through there. We don't need mm. a good keeper. Um, we'll just get him from a batting perspective. But even in T20 cricket, 
And I especially think of, you know, uh, subcontinent where spinners and the keepers standing up and the ball might be, you know, spitting out of different roughs or whatever. You always need your best keeper because especially in T20 cricket, those half chances you have to take. So why mm, would absolutely. you just have a backstop? I mean, you know, we, we can go into um, Delhi Capitals and, and how they had Safraz Khan for one game and he, he was catching the ball like an alligator and I was like, oh, dear, <laughs> like that can't happen. He only kept for one game and then next game he was fielding and then the third game he was out. <laughs> so, um, you know, you I just think I think you've still got to um, respect the positions and what they bring to the team um and and more so in test cricket but yeah the 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 catches that they've dropped are very very simple so i, I don't know loss of concentration but yeah you'd have to speak to the individual players on why they they just didn't switch on in those times well they're probably relaxed and happy and you know <laughs> feeling irresponsible now i've got a a thought about that Australia, I don't know if we've handled baseball that well. Like I think sometimes Pat Cummins looks a bit rattled in the field. And I've been saying this since he was given the captaincy, and I'm going to stick to it. I do not think it is sustainable having your best fast bowler as captain. I think very few examples in history have worked. You're talking about Imran Khan, who went on to be prime minister of his country. You know, So there's a pretty unique individual right there who can do it. Everyone brings him up. And I think Cummins is a fantastic leader. But in the field sometimes, I think the pressure of being the leader of the attack and then worrying about the field is really getting to him, especially when you've got... England batters coming hard. There's no break. It's not like you can get a couple of overs where yeah. they might just knock a few around and defend a few and you can think about things. And, and I don't know if we're actually taking away from his bowling by adding this pressure to him. I mean, he did pick up six for in the last test in the first innings, didn't he? He did indeed. But in the second <laughs> innings when we needed him, he looked rattled and tired. He didn't bowl well. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I, I love Cummins, but I'm just, I think sometimes people these days think you can reinvent the game. There's been a reason why fast bowlers aren't traditionally captains. Yeah. And and normally it's been because they can't sustain playing every test. Mm. Uh, and there tends to be a, a rotation of fast bowlers. Um, I feel like the amount of cricket that Pat Cummins has missed over the years, um, he's probably in the best shape of his life. Um and I guess the question was, at the point of his appointment, who we, who else were we going to turn to? Um, there was a reluctancy to go back to Steve Smith. Mm. Um, there were questions about David Warner. Obviously, he tried to, to overturn his lifetime ban. Um, and then you're kind of scratching your head. Um, you know, I, I remember speaking about Alex Carey to... I can't remember, maybe it was Belinda Clark just saying, how's he going? And she said, I think that he, because he missed um, a number of years, those crucial years playing AFL, like he's a wonderful leader, but probably the strategy will just take a little bit longer because he's missed those years of not playing the game because he seemed like someone potentially that could could step into that role. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I think, I, I, I think that anyone would be rattled um, when you've got a Ben Stokes who's inflicted so much pain on you already historically starts to go and you're like, holy smokes, who do I turn to? Um, 
yes, you, I, I almost liken sometimes captaincy like, and especially in those situations, a duck on, on the pond. You know, it looks nice and calm, but the legs are helter-skelter mm-hmm. underneath. Um, and he just needs to be able to kind of control those emotions. And also there is enough leaders, there's enough senior players within that group that I don't think he has to, and I think this is where the game has gone. I don't think the captain has to set the field for things. I think the bowl at least needs to know where they're going to bowl and where they think the batter is going to hit the ball. So I think the role of the captain um, has lessened over time through professionalism. There, you'll always get some players who just go, mate, tell me where you want to bowl. Um, you know, I don't, you set the field, I'll just bowl it, mm. go. But I, I, I do think that there isn't as much responsibility on his shoulders out in the middle as much. And Steve, I think Steve Smith's heavily involved anyway in setting the field, what it, what it seems like. Mm. We saw at Lord's. There was a bit of a meeting between Kawaja Smith and Cummins at one point that seemed to get the turn the tactics around. I just think though, what tends to happen is that Pat Cummins knows that if Australia win or lose, he's going to be the one either getting the plaudits or getting hammered in the media. So in the end, he ends up having to sort of go for his gut most of the time. Yeah, uh, and that I just think comes with the role. Um, Anyway, it was, I, you know, it's a really interesting insight you provide there. Yeah, it, it, it'll be fascinating to see how he develops as well, right? Because because I would imagine, um, I think he, did he captain New, New South Wales a couple of times, I think in the Marsh Cup maybe? He did, yeah, that was his yeah. only captaincy experience. Yeah. So, so we're literally throwing a guy into the second most professional job we call in Australia, the, the, the highest honour. Um, and we're expecting him to do it under severe pressure, and yet he's had no actual chance to learn the skill and art of trusting your gut, failing, failing in club cricket, failing in underage, failing at New South Wales that's not even televised, to then let's go, good luck to you. We're going to scrutinise everything that you do. And they Um, will on this podcast or we will. Which you certainly will, Menace. He certainly got the media down. Like if it's Cricket Australia wanted a front man, he's the perfect one. Like when they say to him, um, oh, you know, will you bowl bowl underarm in the next test? And he just laughed and said, oh, well, it depends how flat the wicket is. Or, you know, when he said, oh, how many runs do you want to set England? Oh, I'd be happy with 600. Like he's he's just such a charming leader for the country. Yeah. He's very calm. You know, so he is the perfect front man. <laughs> All right. I, I want to wrap this up, Lisa, by talking about your first year as the first ever woman president of the Federation of International Cricketers Association. So last year you made history and you're sitting atop of this really important organization because right now cricket is at a sort of a juncture and we're seeing the continued pressure from T20 franchises. Uh, firstly, how's your, how's your first year in the job been? Uh, it's been good, actually. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. Um, I've tried to kind of uh, bring my area of expertise in, um, in the sense that, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time in India. There's no, there's no current um, association for, for players. Uh, there is for, for past players an association but world cricket is in india and all of our 
players that are part of the the FICA group um, go to India. So we need to have more presence there. We need to understand the culture, understand the conditions so we can assist our players. Um, So, you know, we've We've started to do, I went to Bangladesh recently as well and met with um, the Players Association there. So uh, it's certainly been an eye-opener in understanding the world economic game and um, how things are done at that next level. Um, But I've enjoyed kind of working with some of, you know, literally the forefathers of Players Associations when it comes to cricket and their understanding of how things have gone in the past and some of the stories that they've told me and um, where the game is going. You're right, it, it is it is at a fascinating position at the moment. Um, and, you know, for purists, we're, we're all holding on to, to the traditional model, um, but the landscape has changed dramatically and, um, you know, the, the game will evolve like it has done in centuries before. So, um it's still exciting times. I think sometimes we get a little bit disheartened about the fact that, well, hang on, there might be a player that is owned by a franchise and that they'll they'll kind of give the NOC to, to play for your country, not the other way around, your country giving the NOC to play for the franchise. Um, but, you know, we're fortunate. We're, what other sport has has the blessings of being able to talk about all these different formats um, all these different options um, and a career path for players, not in your traditional come and play for your state or county and go up through that way, but how about I just play T20 leagues and I've got a good income and and if I play well enough, I might get selected for my country. So there's, there's different models that are out there now and um, more opportunities for the players. It, it hasn't happened yet, but there are talks that after this 50-over World Cup, there might be a, a bit of a push to contract some players at the end of their career. And, you know, maybe they'll be contracted for Indian IPL franchises and play across multiple competitions. You know, I look at a player like you know, Daniel Sams for New South mm. Wales, who didn't take a contract because he wants to be able to play around the world. So you talk about opportunities and they're brilliant for the players, but do you think we're going to see that shift this year where some players decide to take a contract? Yeah, I think we may see a shift, but um, one player that um, spoke to us, Fika, at the AGM last year in Adelaide was uh, Dan Christian. Now, he's a guy that has forged his career out in T20 tournaments, but he came in and said, I couldn't have achieved what I did without those 10 years in domestic cricket, (laughs) playing Mm. shield cricket, playing 50 over But that's my issue, though. Does then our state systems just become feeders for T20 comps around the world? I mean, that's a real challenge there. Yeah, it it is a real challenge. And, you know, that's why I think there's conversations potentially of, you know, a transfer fee or a fee to kind of go back into the association that helped build that player because there's a huge investment that goes in. I don't actually reckon players understand how much money is put into them to develop them to where they are. I mean, having been on the other side of being working at Cricket New South Wales in the high performance department, you kind of get to see how much money we're throwing at these players. But we're also trying to keep them in the game as well so that they don't go off to another sport. So it's a little bit of of a cat and mouse game in that sense. But um, I, I hope... I hope that players still understand the need uh, and see the need for B 
being part of a program, learning your basics, learning your your training, your SNC stuff um, in a, a state program for a number of years before you start to kind of put yourself out there. Because I don't think the longevity will be there because you're not part of a group that helps and assists you along the way. Um, you know, you can like uh, Deandra Dotton, for instance, I'll give that as a prime example in the women's game as, as kind of gone freelance, right? But now she has to sort out all of her physio reports and medical reports. And if she gets injured, she's got to have her own personal physio, her own doctor. You know, there's almost like um, your tennis stars going around with your own little team. That's what it's going to be like for some of these players if they want to do it well that that's what they'll have to do. They'll have to invest money into that. Um, and I don't think players quite understand that. So um, I still think that there is a strong need for players still to be part of a structure for, you know, their formative years and then they can then they can branch out. Then they, then, then they have the right to, I think, um, because they're good enough cricketers to sustain that for, for a longer period. You hear those stories of the T20 players down at the local nets preparing for competitions. or So you're right, it, it's certainly different um, different to being part of an organisation. Uh, do you think Test cricket's un- under threat, though, from T20 leagues? Because I tend to think it's not. We're just going to see the marquee series really take centre stage. Uh, I, I don't think Test cricket is is, is under siege just yet. Um you know, what I believe in, and it's something that, that Fika have, have kind of spoken about is that there needs to be windows, windows where these T20 leagues play, um, maybe two months a year for the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere, you know, that type of thing to allow then international cricket to fit comfortably in between. Um, I mean, and we've kind of seen that around our Big Bash period as well. We've got the South African 20 SA 20 you've got the UAE league so all of a sudden everyone's fighting for the same players right so you, the thing is there's a hundred players that everyone wants mm. they want them in their country they want them in all of the T20 leagues they can't do it so instead of fighting against international cricket fight against the other T20 leagues um and and try and to to save save international cricket that way and that means everyone gets what they want to a certain degree. Um, and I think the we've already seen a hierarchy of T20 leagues, mm. haven't we? The IPL, the PSL is right up there. The 100 is up there, you know, Big Bash and CPL. So, you know, so people start yeah. to go, okay, I, I definitely want to play in that tier. Oh, I'm not good enough to make that tier. I'll go down to this tier. So there, there are opportunities for so many players. Um, and I think, I think, T20 leagues need to understand where they are in the pecking order um, and work in amongst that as well. But um, I hope that the test cricket doesn't die because we've seen such um, entertaining series. Mm. I, I noticed there was a move by the ICC to maybe limit the amount of international players in T20 franchise leagues. So you can't have seven international players. You have to have a minimum local requirement, which I think is sensible because that is really what these franchises should be about as well is developing local cricket because then they can become test cricketers and 50 over cricketers, um, but it's got to start somewhere. All right, last one, Lisa, you've been so good with your time. I'm going to end you with a really curly one. Now, I had Craig Foster on the show uh, leading mm. into 
Australia playing Afghanistan last year in the T20 World Cup. And he said that Afghanistan is the only country in the world that bans women from secondary education and sport. And as soon as the Taliban marched in and took over, they immediately cracked down on women's education and sport. Wondering what your position is with Afghanistan still being allowed to compete in international cricket. Yeah, it's one that's not easy. Um, um, It's one that I think everyone kind of grapples with. Um, And it's very easy to a certain extent to kind of sit afar and make a make a statement about it and and a suggestion on moving forward you know having spoken to people um in Pakistan for instance um and even in South Africa when apartheid was there and South Africa lost their opportunity to to kind of play international cricket um from reports there they were saying that literally a lot of the whites back then were very annoyed that they weren't playing cricket, that they weren't allowed to be part of international cricket. So it actually caused more friction internally than it did to solving the problem, even though from a a governing body they sanctioned that. Um, So I guess it's trying to understand the implications that if Afghanistan were pulled out or if Australia was not to, to continue to play or I think, you know, not, I think there was a call you had mentioned about the World Cup, don't play them in the World Cup. Mm. You know, how would that be seen? How would women be seen back in that country? Does that help them? Does it does it solve a problem? Do, would they change their rules? Would they allow women to do that? I, I guess, you know, I don't have a position because it is too intricate for my, my general knowledge. But one thing is I think... Um, I think Tracy Holmes did a um, a good piece on the t- the ticket. I think it was um, yeah, she did where great. she yeah where she spoke to some of the Afghanistan players, and they're like the the play, the male players get annoyed that they may not play this this one off test against Australia, right? But we don't get to play any day, <laughs> mm. let alone just one five day test match. So think about us and what we're doing. Um, I think people would love to to do something to assist and help them and and hence why you know a lot of the players are now out in Australia and and hoping to get more opportunities here in in this country but um I don't know what the answer is and I don't know what will fix it because a part of me feels that if we were to sanction them and they weren't to compete would anything change So probably not but it's yeah. it's uh, yeah it's it's a curly one I I do think, though, there is some, I don't know, implied acceptance if they're allowed to to play international sport. I think if you're letting them come on the field with a flag, whether not playing them would do anything is a different question. But I think if you let them on, you're kind of tacitly accepting them. And, you know, Craig Foster brings up the fact that Saudi Arabia are doing better than uh, Afghanistan. So... I know I know that the ICC has a committee that is working with the Afghan cricket board um, to try and understand what's happening in that country and and to try and ensure that you know women's cricket potentially starts to to get some kind of light. I mean, the fact that majority of their team is out of the country now um, that have to start from grassroots um, and the world is completely different in that land than what mm. we're used to here in this country. So 
um, you know, I keep urging ICC to keep asking the right questions and and keep delving a little bit deeper to to get a, a better understanding to make sure that <clears throat> you know we've come a long way where cricket was seen as just a boys' sport, a man's sport. Um, we've come a long way now where the game is seen as a sport for any gender, any race. So I'd love to see young girls. Which journalists? A journalist suggested, and I can't remember which one, maybe it was Ali Mitchell, suggested that they should, whenever Afghanistan plays an, an international men's fixture, there should be female umpires. And I think that would send a pretty good message. Yeah, well, we're starting to see a number of the female umpires start to, I mean, we had a couple, Eloise Sheridan, she um, was officiating, she was the first female to officiate on on the field in Big Bash. So um, Kim Cotton did so in in a one-day internationals over in New Zealand. So um, there's certainly more and more females out there. Maybe it would be a, an interesting statement. Definitely. Well, Lisa, good to finish on a curly one. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Menas. Just, um, but, I, I, you know, I really wanted to get your opinion on it because it's something I grapple with. And I think what you say is is in one sense right that just, just maybe – Blanket banding them is not going to solve anything just yet. Work with them, see if there's can be something can be done. Yeah. But then maybe eventually just just have to ban them. I think. Um, Go back to your your original thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, I know obviously the the listeners will be able to see you what, next summer with Channel Seven. Still got the rights, so excellent. Yeah. And also you're launching a show, Covers to Cow Corner, which will be a little bit of a hit on cricket news. So exciting stuff. You never stop. No, it's supposed to be my break, but all of a sudden, you know, when you get an idea at 11.30 at night, you're like, okay, let's do this. This sounds good. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. I'm such a bastard. I saw you on your break and thought, oh, I can get her on my podcast. She's going to gallivant around the world. I'm happy to, given that... um, you were able to recognize me. So you 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 were you enjoyed women's cricket before it got sexy, right? So, you know, we love you. Oh, thank you. That's beautiful to hear. And I I do remember the fact that they showed your final in 2013 on the Fashion Channel on Foxtel. Oh dear. <laughs> at least oh, they showed well. it. <laughs> True. At least they showed it. At least there's some vision out there. I can't fake it, right? Exactly. All right, listeners, that was Lisa Stalake, a former Australian captain and the first ever international cricketer to appear on the show. And we'll be back next week with a preview of the Ashes. This is a Piccolo podcast production. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.